Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you for this opportunity that we can come together to worship you. Lord, I pray this morning, again, I pray that you will uh, clear our minds and clear our hearts so that we can focus on you. Lord, open your word to us this morning. Help us to see your truth, Lord. Help us to apply that truth to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this morning, um, we are continuing our sermon series, looking into Acts, and this is um, Jesus' mission continues, and we're trying to look at the early church and figure out what lessons we can learn to help us to apply our vision here, and that vision is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This week, we are in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 13, Um, And I'm calling this traits of a disciple maker. Well, pretty much because this passage shows us three truths or three traits of a disciple maker. And that is that a disciple maker is filled with the Holy Spirit. A disciple maker is enabled by the Holy Spirit. And a disciple maker will seem weird to the lost. Now, as you're turning there, um, I want to give you a little bit of context. I know normally I read a little bit from Scripture first and then give context. But this morning I thought it was important to give this context up front. Now, we'll see in verse 1 that this is the day of Pentecost. Uh, The day of Pentecost was a Jewish holiday that had uh, they had been following ever since the Exodus. Um, And we see that in Exodus uh, chapter 23, verse 16. God says, You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. So the day of Pentecost was a festival in Jerusalem, and they were celebrating the first harvest of of the year. Um, And this was... 50 days after Passover, 50 days after Passover. And this was one of three Jewish festivals where all Jewish males were required to come to Jerusalem. And we see that in the next verse, uh, so Exodus 23, 17. It says, three times in the year, you sh- uh, you, sorry, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord. Like I said, this is 50 days after Passover. And when we think back through the timeline, you know, Jesus' last supper with his disciples this was, this was their Passover meal. And then three days later, he was resurrected. And then Luke tells us that he was with them for about 40 days after he was resurrected. So you add all that together, you got about 44, 45 days, somewhere around there. So um, the, uh, the, the Passover, I'm sorry, the day of Pentecost was about five to ten days after Jesus' ascension. Now, we read earlier in Acts chapter 1, we read where Jesus took his disciples out to the Mount of Olives and he gave them some instructions. He said, go back to the city and wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Um, sorry, I skipped a slide. The, uh, the 40 days, that, that time when they were back in Jerusalem, this is where I got my last two sermons. You uh, Hopefully we're here for that. And that's where we see the five essential ingredients of a disciple-making strategy. And that's Sabbath, community, prayer, Bible study, and dependence on the Holy Spirit. We're going to continue that and think not just on our disciple-making strategy, but on each of us as disciple-makers. Um, I was talking about Acts 1.8, where Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, you may remember I said that this statement can kind of be used as an outline for the rest of the books of Acts, or the rest of the book of Acts. Um, we see the ministry to Jerusalem, and that's Acts 2. Uh, starts in chapter 2 and goes to verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 3. And then the ministry to Judea and Samaria, 
picks up right where that left off and goes all the way through chapter 12 and then the end of the earth picks up in verse 13 or chapter 13 to the end of the book. But see, I think it's very fitting that the Holy Spirit would choose the day of Pentecost to, to start this ministry in Jerusalem. I think it's very fitting that God would choose that because you have all these uh, Jews from all over the known world coming to the city. So when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, he brought all the Jews to Jerusalem to start this ministry. Let's uh, go ahead and get started in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So verses 1 through 4 show us our first trait of a disciple maker, and that is that a disciple maker is filled with the Holy Spirit. A disciple maker is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now something interesting in this passage is that uh, in verses 1 and 4, Luke uses the term all. All. Now this is referring to the 120 plus or minus believers that were with them in the upper room. In verse 15, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were there uh, was about 120. So when this is talking about all, it's talking about all of the believers who were there, about 120 believers. What this tells us is that it's not just a specific group of Christians that get the Holy Spirit. It's not for, uh, the Holy Spirit is not for the Christian elites, or it's not just for the pastors or the professors or the intellectuals. It's not just for the people who have been Christians for X amount of years or people who have earned a right to the Holy Spirit. No. This, when it says all, this tells us that every Christian is endowed with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment that you believe. At the moment that you believe. Now, this is different from the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and rest on one person for a certain period of time to achieve a specific mission. We see this with Saul. We see this with um, David. And we see this with a lot of the prophets, that the Holy Spirit came and rested on them for a, point of, for a period of time so that they could accomplish a specific mission from God. Now, with Moses, we see that Moses had the Holy Spirit for a long time and and we also see that Moses wrote quite a bit in the Old Testament, the first five books. So there's, a, there's some sort of difference here between the Old Testament and the New Testament with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, his purpose is the same, but the way he does it is different. And see, this marks the inauguration of the New Covenant. The Holy Spirit coming to live within Christians is the start of the New Covenant. Now, this is different. Like I said, it's different from the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was the Mosaic Law. And see, the Old Covenant shows us that we need a Savior. That Mosaic Law, there was a, you know, Moses took five books to give context and to describe these laws. So this, the, the Old Testament, or sorry, the Old Covenant shows us God's expectations for His people. The Old Covenant shows us God's holiness, but it also shows us our failures. The Old Covenant displays for us that we cannot earn God's love. 
the Old Testament or the Old Covenant shows us that we need somebody to come and to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin. And the New Covenant is the beautiful story of the Holy Spirit coming to live within us after we have received that Savior that the Old Covenant shows us that we need. You see, the Old Covenant condemns us, whereas the Gospel saves us. Jesus completely fulfilled all of the expectations and all of the laws of the Old Covenant when He came and He lived His perfect life and He died the perfect death on the cross. And the Bible tells us that for those who believe in Him, we shall not be condemned. For those who believe in Jesus, there will be eternal life. And that that relationship that we broke with God can be recon, uh, reconciled. So the, the Holy Spirit marks the inauguration of the new covenant. And we see this um, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 and 10, where the author of Hebrews is actually quoting Jeremiah 31. And so this is in two different places, almost word for word. Um, Hebrews 8, 7 through 10 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now this is talking about the old covenant. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. And then in verse 10, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make, the new covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And see this putting my laws into their minds and write on their hearts. This is the Holy Spirit. God has promised the Holy Spirit to come. And so this is marking the new covenant, not the old covenant. From this point forward in Scripture, with maybe one exception, the Holy Spirit is given to Christians at the moment of belief. At the moment of belief, Christians are given the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean at Victory? Where we're talking about worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, to do so, in order to make disciples, we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not to mention, as a disciple... We are filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're looking to introduce people to the gospel so that the Holy Spirit can come into them and they can believe. We cannot ignore the Holy Spirit when we are seeking to make disciples because it is all about the Holy Spirit. We do this through the power of the Holy Spirit, but we're also inviting that person to, to uh, accept the gospel and to have the Holy Spirit to come live within them. Now, I also I want to um, point back to my definition of a disciple. And this comes from Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And that first part there where Jesus says, Follow me, a disciple follows Jesus, and thus is filled with the Holy Spirit. So as a disciple maker, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit because we are following Jesus. As a disciple maker, we are seeking to have others filled with the Holy Spirit because they follow Jesus. Now our second point picks up in verse 4. And it says, Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. 
They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native languages? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. So secondly, we see that a disciple maker is enabled by the Holy Spirit. Now, if I'm being completely honest with you, as I was going through here, I was thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe I shouldn't choose the word enabled because it has such a, a negative connotation in our culture. Um, we talk about enabling relationships in a negative way. Um, but as I was looking at it, this is the word that the translators chose to put here. Um, the people who translated the, the Christian Standard Bible, they chose this word enabled. By, and they were trying to be faithful to the Scriptures and trying to be faithful to the original language. And so I, I decided that, okay, well, this seems like it's a good word. It's there in, in the Bible. So we'll stick with that word instead of trying to make up a new one. Um, and so what were they enabled to do? Well, it says that they were speaking in tongues. They were enabled by the Holy Spirit, and they were speaking in tongues. Now, this is not the heavenly utterances uh, that we would see in a uh, Pentecostal or charismatic church. And I'm pretty confident about that one because it says that uh, those around, the people from all over, they understood them. And so the, the speaking in tongues that we see in the Pentecostal or charismatic church, there are, um, they said that those are heavenly utterances. They're not earthly languages. And so this tells me that this, this speaking in tongues is not what we see in there. And if that, if somebody wants to make that argument, then I think they need to pick a different scripture than this one to make that argument. But when it says, as the Spirit enabled them, so how do you know if the Spirit is enabling, to, enabling you to do something? Well, it's really simple. In verse 11, it says, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. So how do you know if the Holy Spirit is enabling you to do something? Well, is it glorifying to God? And does it focus the attention on God? Or does it focus the attention on you? If the Holy Spirit is enabling you to do something, then it's going to glorify God. And it's going to point people to the gospel. Now see, it's not just lost people that need the gospel. Yes, lost people do need the gospel. But so do we. Those of us who know Jesus, those of us who believe in the gospel, we still need the gospel. Because when we fall into sin daily, when we fall into sin, and when we struggle with our habitual sins, we still need the power of the gospel to bring us out of that. We still need the power of the gospel to help us grow out of that, to bring us closer to Jesus. But if it is an act enabled by the Holy Spirit, then it is going to glorify God, and it's not going to glorify us. See, I heard a story this week. Um, on I was listening to the, the Church Planner podcast. And the main guy on there, he has been a church planner for decades. And the first church that he planted was in Wales. Now, if you know anything culturally about Wales, it is a very post-Christian culture. The people there feel like they have grown out of their need to worship uh, a God that is just kind of, you know, this old world 2,000 years ago. We don't need that anymore. We're more self-sufficient. We don't need to, to rely on this deity. 
And uh, he was talking about when he was in Wales, they had a show over there, similar to what we have here. Uh, we had that show called uh, Wife Swap. I don't know if it still airs. But if you, don't, uh, if you know anything about the show, basically you have these two families, and they choose for a season, you know, maybe a week or something, to, to have the wife go live with the other family. And so they swap wives. Um, and the wife is kind of there and trying to show them how they do things in their family. And the one wife that was swapped with another family was a Christian. And the whole week she's there and she's teaching the gospel and she's bringing these people to the realization that they are sinners. And she's, she's showing them the beauty that is God's love. And then on Sunday morning, she takes them to church. And they walk into church and there are people, numerous people, shouting, speaking in tongues. There are people convulsing on the floor. And then you have this family. They step back their eyes are huge, and they are scared. And they interview the dad afterwards, and the dad says, you know, I, I kind of thought that what she was saying made a little bit of sense, but then when I went there, I, I realized that this isn't for me. That shows me that what they were doing was not enabled by the Holy Spirit because it did not glorify God. It did not point people to the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that speaking in tongues in the, the Pentecostal belief or the charismatic church. I'm not saying that that can't be, but what I see usually is not glorifying to God, and it does not point people to the gospel. Usually, it actually detracts from the gospel, and it glorifies man. We want to make sure that whatever we're doing, if we're going to claim that it is enabled by the Holy Spirit, it needs to glorify God. Our life is here to glorify God. Now, I may be taking this and oversimplifying a little bit, but the disciples or the apostles here, as they are speaking in all these different languages and telling the magnificent works of God, all I see is that they are telling other people the works of God in a way that they can understand. Yes, it is enabled by the Holy Spirit. It is powerful, but it is not magical. It is godly. And I do think that it is a miracle. But this is not some, uh, this, this thing that where they're just taking away from God. They are simply telling about God and His glorious works in a way that other people can understand it. Now for us, when we look at that, we have to make sure that, the, that as disciple makers, we are doing everyday mundane activities in a way that glorifies God. We take our life and work it in a way, we operate in our lives in such a way that we are glorifying God, even in the conversations that we have. A disciple maker uses basic conversation to point to God. A disciple maker uses conversation to introduce people to the gospel or to help believers see where they still need to apply the gospel in their lives. We also look at the effects of the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit came and it enabled them. But what else do we see in Scripture? What, what else do we see the Holy Spirit doing um, in believers' lives? We see the fruit of the Spirit, and that's in Galatians chapter 5, um, in verses 22 and 23. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against, uh, sorry, the law is not against such things. 
So the fruit of the Spirit. Also, spiritual gifts. Now, I think spiritual gifts is another one of those things that has been blown out of proportion and, and kind of made the, into this giant mystery. Well, we see in the New Testament there are five different lists of spiritual gifts. And I kind of tried to put them all together into one list. I may have missed one, um, or I may have repeated. Um, but it, uh, when I took those lists and I put them together, I have apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, healing, service, tongues, leadership, mercy, giving, exhortation, faith, and miracles. But you know, if I missed one in that list, I'm not, I'm not really concerned about it. Because in all of these five different lists, there are some gifts listed in some of them. There are some gifts that are left out of others. See, I don't think any of these lists, I don't think they're extensive. I don't think they're exhaustive. I don't think that the Bible shows us all of the spiritual gifts that we have, at least not in a list form. It shows us as we read through the stories and as we see the truths of God's Word and as we learn God's character, we see spiritual gifts. But I don't think there's a list in the Bible that has all of them. I don't think we can take all the different lists and add them together and get all of the spiritual gifts. Um, to, when I think of spiritual gifts, what I think of is it's when you allow your talents and your passion and your personality and your skills to be used for disciple-making and thus kingdom growth. Spiritual gifts is when you allow God to work in your life so that what you do glorifies Him. If you are a teacher, then your spiritual gift is teaching in a way that glorifies God. If you enjoy serving others, then your spiritual gift is serving in a way that glorifies God. If you are a giver, then your spiritual gift is giving in a way that glorifies God, and it points to the gospel. As a disciple-maker, we take every bit of our life down to the mundane details, and use them to glorify God and to worship God. Whatever we do, it needs to be pointing to the gospel. If what we're doing detracts from the gospel, then our spiritual gifts are being misused. So at Victory, again, we're thinking about our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We use the fruit of the Spirit and our spiritual gifts to support our disciple-making strategy, to make disciples. We don't come to church to be served. We come to church to serve the body, to grow the kingdom. We come to church to make disciples. We go throughout our lives to make disciples. We do not, uh, sorry, we, uh, we are the church so that we can fulfill the Great Commission. And that's in Matthew 28. He said, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, I want to connect this back to my definition of a disciple. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, Follow me and I will make you fish for people. So the second part of this definition of a disciple is somebody who is being remade or somebody who is being changed by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We talk about spiritual gifts and we talk about fruit of the Spirit and we think about gentleness and patience and self-control and serving. These are not mentalities that, that most people in our, in our society value. Or at least they don't pride themselves. And, oh yes, I'm a very patient person. Most people, when you talk to them, you say, oh well, yeah, patience is something that I need to work on. But 
We, as disciple makers, as disciples, need to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and enable us, remake us into the way that God created us to begin with before sin came and destroyed our relationship with God, before we sinned and, and uh, infected creation with our sin. Finally, the third point, um, I'm, this comes from two different passages in here. It starts in verse 6 and goes to 8 and then 12 and 13. It says, When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? And then verse 12 says, They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But some sneered and said, They're drunk on new wine. So a disciple maker will seem weird to the lost. A disciple maker is going to stand out from the crowd. A disciple maker is going to seem weird to the lost. Now, how do we know this? We see in the Bible, it talks, or in this passage, it talks about confusion. The people who were there who were looking on, it, uh, the way they're described is confused, astounded, perplexed. And they ask the question, what does this mean? They're confused. But even though they're confused, what I find interesting here is, that, is how this uh, compares and contrasts with the Tower of Babel. And this is in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Let me read that for you. It says, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us uh, make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the land. Then the Lord came down, looked over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. I think it's interesting how this passage compares and contrasts, how this day of Pentecost is similar but so very different from the Tower of Babel. See, at Babel, in Babylon, man was trying to selfishly glorify himself, and thus he had rejected God. So God came down and confused their language, and the people scattered throughout the whole world. But see, at the day of Pentecost, God came down. God brought all the nations to him, and God spoke to the people so that they could all understand for the purpose of glorifying God. See, there's a lot of similarities here, but all those similarities seem to point to differences. Whereas instead of scattering them throughout the land, God brings them all to Jerusalem. And instead of glorifying man, God is glorifying himself. Because we don't deserve the glory. God deserves the glory. And instead of confusing the language so that people can't understand each other, God causes man to speak in a way that everybody can understand, can understand his glory, can understand the gospel. See, now, maybe more than ever, people usually operate for their own glory. People are seeking to glorify themselves. You hear the, the phrase, you got to look out for number one. You got to take care of yourself. Well, I think that goes against the gospel. 
You don't look out for number one, as in number one being me. You're seeking to glorify God. Christians, out of love, we don't operate for our own glory. We operate for the glory of God. This will cause people to question why we do what we do, because it's going to be different. And uh, 1 Peter 3.15 speaks to that. It says, But in your hearts regard Christ as the Lord always, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, this gives us the opportunity to share about Jesus. When we are seeking to glorify God, people are going to be confused. We're going to stand out from the crowd. And people are going to ask you, why are you doing that? Why are you acting like that? Why are you so different? Why are you so kind and loving and patient? Hopefully that's what they're asking. And we take that opportunity to tell them that, you know, God created the whole world so that he can have a relationship with us. God created us out of his love. But we rebelled against him and we sinned and we broke that relationship. And we live now in a place of brokenness and there's hurt and there's pain all around us. And we see people all the time trying to fix this brokenness on their own through all sorts of different ways. Some people try to fix this brokenness by by diving into their job and and working really, really hard. Some people try to fix this brokenness by, by loving on their family. Some people try to fix this brokenness through drugs or alcohol. But all of these things are just going to lead to more brokenness because it's not fixing the issue. The issue is that we are separated from God because of our sin. And we can't fix that. But God has provided a way. God sent his son, Jesus, to die for our sins. So when people ask us why we act different, we say God sent his son, Jesus, to love me, to die for my sins. And all we have to do is to repent and believe in him, believe in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to turn away from our sins and to recover and pursue the the way that God created this world to be. God... uh, The Holy Spirit gives us the power to pursue that relationship with God, that right relationship. When we act differently, hopefully it's going to cause people to ask questions. And we can take that and use it for the glory of God. Secondly, we see that people, the the people who were there, some of them rejected this message. They said they're drunk on new wine. So, unfortunately... Sometimes, no matter how much we try to glorify God, there will be some who reject this message. But we have to remember that they are not our enemy. They are not the enemy. They're prisoners of the enemy. They are slaves to sin and death. They're not the enemy. They're captives. They're POWs. They're not the enemy. We cannot attack them. The enemy. Satan is the one who has them captive. And as if we attack that person, then they'll never listen to the gospel again, more than likely. I mean, the Holy Spirit can do anything. God can do anything. But more than likely, if we start attacking people, then they're just going to close their ears to the gospel even more. They're going to close their minds and never believe anything else about Scripture. No matter how much we try to glorify God, there will some who will always reject that message. And throughout history, one way or another, Christianity has always been persecuted. You see, we, we look in, um, in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. 
Paul speaks about this persecution. He says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. You see this persecution that Christians go through? Again, we take it and we use it for the glory of God. We rejoice in persecution. We rejoice in affliction because we can use it to point back to God. So at Victory, how do we take this and, and apply it to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Realize that a disciple maker is going to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to seize the opportunity to glorify God and bring attention to Him. We're going to use our differences to draw attention to God. We can't use our differences to draw attention to ourselves. See, on, on the ride over this morning, I was um, listening to another podcast, and they, they mentioned something that really got me thinking. You know, about the relationship between being an American and being a Christian. And I got to thinking, okay, well, is it more correct to think of ourselves as Christian Americans or American Christians? Now, I don't have the answer for that. Like I said, I just got started thinking about this this morning and tumbling it around in my head. But we have to realize that our first, our first identity is in Christ. We, um, when we look at population studies, they talk about subcultures. So we have an American culture, and then within the American culture, there would be the Christian subculture. But see, I think that's backwards. I think that as we look at population, we see the Christian culture, and within Christianity, there's an American subculture. Our first identity is as Christians. And that's going to cause us to act different. But because of those differences, we're going to point to God, and we're going to glorify Him and tell others the gospel. We're going to make disciples. Use the gospel to make disciples. Um, jumping off of that, I want to invite everybody to join me on June 24th. On, it's a Saturday morning. Um, it'll probably be about three hours from 9 to 12. I want to do a um, what I'm calling Gospel Conversations for Making Disciples. Um, again, that's Gospel Conversations for Making Disciples, and that's June 24th. It's a Saturday morning. Um, and this is just it's, it's looking at different ways that we as Christians can use everyday conversations to point to the gospel. Because, like I said earlier, it's not just, it's not just lost people that, that need the gospel. But all Christians, all people need the gospel. Not just lost people, but Christians too. Because the same sin that holds the lost person captive, we still fall into that sin. Not the sin of unbelief, but other sins. And we still need the same power of the same gospel to bring us out of that. So that's June 24th, and I'm calling it Gospel Conversations for Making Disciples. Now let's think back again to our definition of a disciple. Again, this is Matthew 4.19. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And this is that third part of that definition, where Jesus says that you will be fishers of men, as a lot of translations put it. So a disciple does the work of Jesus by being empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
So application from this message. First, first application point, that is to be filled by the Holy Spirit. The only way to be filled by the Holy Spirit is to believe in Jesus and his sacrifice. The first application point is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the only way to do that is to accept Jesus as your Savior. Realize that you are a sinner and that you are a slave to sin and that there's nothing that you can do to work out of it. There's no way that you can earn your way into salvation, but that Jesus came to die for your sins. And that through faith in that, we can recover and pursue God's design. Secondly, is to be enabled by the Holy Spirit. To allow the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. To be transformed by the Holy Spirit. You see, this is so countercultural. Our culture nowadays wants to tell you that you are perfect just the way you are. That you, you have to accept me because this is the way that I am. But that's against the Bible. That goes against what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that I am the way that I am, and that's not okay. That I'm a sinner, and that I can't fix it. And so, allow the Holy Spirit to work in you, to change you, to, to bring you to be more like Jesus, to help you to be more spiritually mature, to help you to be a better disciple and disciple-maker. Another way to be enabled by the Holy Spirit I would say to be in prayer for lost people in your context, in your community, and around the world. So one way that you can do this would be to make a list of people who you know and that you know are lost. Make a list of lost people that you know and that you know are lost. This can be family, it can be co-workers, it can be neighbors, it can be friends. But pray for lost people by name. Another way like I said, praying for lost people around the world, it's hard. It's hard for us to think about all these lost people around the world. It seems really daunting. And so there's a, a website. It's called the Joshua Project, um, and they have an app. So Joshua Project um, is the, the name of the app. And what they have done is they have gone around and they have identified 366 unreached people groups. So these are, they might be tribes or it might be uh, populations or subcultures within a country that are lost, that have a, I can't remember what the exact percentage is, but uh, less than a certain percentage of this population are Christian. And if you, on the, the Joshua app, you can set it to send you a daily reminder to pray for this people group um, and pray for, and they'll give you specific areas to pray for. The other day when I looked at it, um, it was um, Yiddish-speaking Jews in Jerusalem was that unreached people group. Zero percent are Christian. And you think about that and you say, oh wow, they have this the, the context to see the Messiah. They, they have this foundational understanding. They know the Old Testament. And they know the God of the Old Testament. But they fail to recognize that Jesus came and is the Messiah. They failed to recognize that Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. And so, all these different prayer points for that, that people group. And like I said, they've identified 366 different people groups. So you get a different people group every day to pray for. So if you want to pray for lost people around the world, I encourage you to download the Joshua Project app. And the final application point, don't be ashamed that you're different from others. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. 
use those differences to point to the gospel. Embrace it as an opportunity to share the gospel. Embrace it as an opportunity to be a disciple maker. In Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also the Greek. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Lord, I pray this morning, I pray that you will help us to to, uh, apply this to our lives. I pray, Lord, that you will call us to response. And Lord, I pray that we will have the obedience to respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.